News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome everyone to FAQ NYC. I'm producer Alex Brooklyn, and this is the second of two episodes focused on the upcoming primary election for Manhattan District Attorney, where we get specific with the candidates, focusing on what the new prosecutor could and should and will mean for our city. You can hear the first one with Tahani Abushi. Liz Crotty, Diana Florence, and Assemblymember Dan Court at FAQ.NYC, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods, along with a rundown of the field by Rachel Holiday-Smith of The City, and this weekend, a conversation with the only Republican candidate, Thomas Kenneth. Now let's get going with our moderators, Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Alex. And thank you to Alvin Bragg, Eliza Orleans, Lucy Lang, and Tali Farhadian Weinstein for joining us today. Our pleasure. And Harry Siegel. Thanks, Alex. And thanks to all of you for joining us on this special Who DA Fact episode of FAQ NYC. We're going to ask about a half dozen questions over the next hour that each of you will have a turn to answer, starting alphabetically and then rotating the order. With no opening or closing statements, and please try to give specific answers while keeping them under two minutes. If any of you choose to directly address each other, the candidates so addressed can take 30 seconds or so to respond after that round of questions. You're all Zoom pros by now, and this is your time, so let's jump right in. Uh, What do you see as prosecutors' role in promoting public safety? Specifically, how would your office deal with the massive increase in gun violence over the past year? And... How would your office deal with hate crimes and random attacks often perpetrated by mentally ill people with long criminal records? Alvin. Sure. So thank you so much for having me on today. I'll start with uh, gun crimes. Uh, When I was the number two lawyer at the state attorney general's office, we developed a a first of its kind portal where we tracked every single gun found at a crime scene in the state of New York back to its last lawful sale from a firearms dealer that was licensed. The data is illuminating. It's a little blueprint for how we can do gun uh, interdiction. I know these issues well. I've had a semi-automatic weapon pointed at me. I've looked into the eyes of a loved one who had his best friend gunned down in front of him. And so keeping the illegal guns out of Manhattan are key. We also need to supplement that with uh, our, our, our kind of public health perspective. Uh, you know, I'm in Harlem, sort of a group like Street Corner Resources that uh, is doing community intervention, uh, and stopping violence before it happens is also important. Um, and then on, on on hate crimes, this is work that I know very well. When I was uh, at the Attorney General's office, when Trump was elected, uh, we saw an uptick uh, in hate crimes. And we uh, led, as the chief law enforcement officer for the state, uh, a response to educating uh, the rest of the state on, on the statute and how to investigate uh, we need to do that again. I saw the NYPD spokesperson reportedly saying that just getting the law wrong, saying that uh, they needed evidence at the scene of uh, national origin uh, animus. It's not true. Uh, so we need to focus on what the law is and use our common sense. We have a sense of what should be investigated as a hate crime. We need to invest in that. And I call it an inclusionary investigatory approach, following the facts uh, as we would in any other crime. Uh, and as with so much of what we do, Community trust is important to get people to come forward and report these crimes and um, particularly given sort of the Abacus Bank prosecution in Chinatown and other issues with the CA uh, that has been compromised. So I would hit reset button on all that and do what I've done throughout my career. Thank you. Thank you. Eliza. So as a public defender for the last, you know, dozen years, I've seen the way in which prosecutions are brought. And that's from having represented over 3,000 people. And I've seen how incarceration and prosecution is not keeping us safer. It's not addressing the underlying issues people are facing, especially mental health issues. And I think that, you know, this really is bearing out in that so many people who have been through our criminal legal system are the ones who we're seeing come through again and again and reoffend and get rearrested because the system is not working. It's, it's, truly um, a huge problem. And of course, we we have to address the underlying issues people are facing, but we're not going to address mental health issues with more incarceration. That's not going to keep us safer. And obviously, I worry a lot about hate crimes. I'm sure 
you know, most of you have heard me talk about this, but my sister is adopted. She's Chinese. And the rise in anti-Asian violence is something that, that terrifies me, that makes me worry about her, about my nephew. And I really uh, am extremely concerned about that. But again, these are not things that are going to be addressed by additional policing, additional prosecution, additional incarceration. We need to be doing things that actually address the issues people are facing um, that, that, you know, of course, we have to stop the iron pipeline of guns into New York City because, as we know, there's one retailer here in Manhattan that even sells guns. So, you know, there are so many things that we could be doing to reduce gun violence and reduce hate crimes, which don't just involve perpetuating the status quo. Thank you. Uh, Lucy. Thank you all for having us here today. And thanks to my fellow candidates for this midday respite. Usually we only see each other by Zoom for seven hours every night. But <laughs> I, um, I ran a national criminal justice reform organization and served as an assistant district attorney here in Manhattan for many years, handling the most serious violent crimes. I bring to this race a deep concern and commitment to victims and families of victims of gun violence. And I am the person in the race who has responded to the scene of the most heinous acts of gun violence in our city time and time again. From the first day I launched my campaign, I had set forth a comprehensive plan for addressing the increase in gun violence, which is available at votelucylang.com and includes a fast track gun court that would impose uh, swift and certain responses to acts of gun violence, but that it would include trauma-informed supportive services to victims, to people who are charged, and to witnesses to try to break the retaliatory cycle of gun violence in our city by uh, connecting people with peer navigators and community-based resources and exploring restorative justice opportunities. The rise in hate crime is of deep concern to me, as it should be to everyone in this race, and I'm proud to have worked alongside a number of community groups, including Asian American Pacific Islander uh, groups, including faith leaders across the city in building a plan for bulking out the hate crimes unit um, many, many months ago. And that's also set forth on my website. And then, of course, mental illness is um, an area of a deep concern to all of us and requires that we invest in street crisis response programs like CAHOOTS in expanding uh, Manhattan Hope to uh, allow people at the front lines to respond to mental health crises uh, and bring folks who are suffering into clinical and uh, trauma-informed care rather than into the court system. Thank you. And Harry, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, you asked, what do you see as the prosecutor's role in promoting public safety? And let me say back to you that that is our core mission to keep people safe from harm, uh, particularly to keep the most vulnerable among us safe from harm and to demand accountability from those who hurt others. Uh, I'm really worried about the rise in gun violence. Uh, we are on track to have the deadliest year in New York City uh, since 2012 in terms of gun violence. And uh, as district attorney, this is going to be a first priority for me. So I have said that I want to have a gun violence coordinator right in the front office who I'm talking to every day. And it's a problem that has multi-heads. So it requires you know, lots of strategies at once, right? Uh, certainly gun trafficking, uh, which a number of my colleagues have already spoken about here. I mean, we've known this for a long time. This is a blue state and a blue city and the guns are coming from somewhere else. When I was a federal prosecutor, I did a lot of gun cases. All the guns in my cases came from South Carolina and Virginia. You know, that AK-47 that was on the platform at Times Square two weeks ago, obviously is not supposed to be here. Uh, this is where I think having the federal experience and working in partnership with others helps. But we also have to be more aggressive in doing things like enforcing our ghost gun law, getting guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. You know, we know that when there's a gun present, even if the gun never goes off, the abuse and the violence in an intimate partner situation like that gets worse. 
And we have to support community programs like Harlem Mothers Saves and many others uh, who are working to stop the flow uh, and to stop the violence from happening. Uh, you know, in terms of hate crimes, uh, I, I hope we'll get to talk more about this, but I, I was on the New York State Bar Association task force that was convened right before the pandemic started because we thought hate crimes were at an unacceptable level then. And now look at where we find ourselves. And what we found, one of our you know, principal recommendations was that across the state, people need to be better trained in investigating these cases because you have a small window in which to put together the evidence that it wasn't just a crime, but a hate crime. And I'm committed to having that kind of training uh, for the folks who will answer to me. Great. Thank you all. Uh, Eliza, I'm going to start with you for this next uh, round of questioning. Uh, And this is for all of you. What other district attorneys would you cite as a model for your office? And what specific mistakes have you seen other progressive or non-progressive DAs make? And how would you avoid that in Manhattan? So this order will be Eliza, Lucy, Tolly, and then Alvin. So Eliza, we'll start with you two minutes again. Well, I think I've been pretty openly critical of prosecutors as a whole. I think that, you know, certainly of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and Vance and how even he who ran as a progressive back in 2009 and made promises about open file discovery and about, you know, things that he would do in that office and has failed to follow through on those promises. So I think that we are lucky to see examples of progressive prosecutors getting elected who actually have made good on their promises. You know, people like Larry Krasner and Chase Boudin and George Gascon and Rachel Rollins. But oftentimes what happens with prosecutors is, you know, it's it's this thing where it's popular, it becomes popular to say a certain thing. You know, things that I've been saying my entire career as a public defender are now things that are becoming mainstream. Things like decriminalizing drug possession or decriminalizing consensual sex work or ending the reliance on incarceration and instead utilizing treatment. But the reality is oftentimes these promises are made by prosecutors and then not upheld. And prosecutors remain the primary driver of mass incarceration of people of color. So what we need is not another career prosecutor to come in if we want to see real reforms come to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. But we need a public defender, someone who has fought against this system for their entire career, which is exactly what I've done. And I've really seen the devastation and harms that prosecutors have brought and the way in which they've destroyed families and lives. And and what we need to do is make sure that we have someone in there who is not just going to make these promises because they sound good at the time, but who is truly dedicated to bringing about these changes that we so desperately need to see to bring Manhattan to the right side of history. Thank you. Lucy? I have a different perspective on this, informed by my work alongside progressive prosecutors across the country running the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution, and have seen that in many jurisdictions, the progressive prosecutors who are best able to effectively implement their campaign promises to address racial injustice and dismantle mass incarceration are those who have deep roots in the offices which they are now leading. I'm honored to have the endorsement and support of progressive district attorneys from across the country, and some of the many progressive DAs who I admire are Sarah Fair George from Vermont for voluntarily ending the reliance on cash bail. Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore for taking a public health response to substance misuse and, and any number of others. One of the challenges that many progressive district attorneys and others have come up against is the challenge of personnel, because in so many respects, personnel is policy. And when you ask about pitfalls that have been made, some folks have failed to adequately ensure that the mission on which they ran is conveyed to the entirety of their staff, and that can be a real obstacle to implementation. So as district attorney, I follow the model of the progressive DAs who have successfully uh, built a staff who are mission-driven and committed to dismantling mass incarceration and reckoning with racial injustice. Great. Thank you. And Tali, and just to reiterate the question for Tali and Alvin, what other DAs would you cite as a model for your office and what specific mistakes have you seen other progressive or non-progressive DAs make and how would you avoid them in Manhattan? So Tali? 
thank you, Christina. And look, for me, that's uh, a really easy question uh, because my model is DA Eric Gonzalez, the sitting district attorney in Brooklyn. And I was his general counsel, a part of his leadership team. I went over there because he had the ambition of making it the national model for progressive prosecution. And I'm really proud of the work that we did there in dismantling parts of the office and building out completely new ones like the first post-conviction justice bureau in the country. And, you know, while I was working for him, we uh, were in dialogue and collaboration with so many progressive prosecutors around the country through fair and just prosecution and other convenings. And, you know, you asked about mistakes. Uh, I will offer this. Uh, we would often receive calls um, from uh, our colleagues in other places who, were, you know, were asking, well, how did you do this and how did you do that? And uh, I teach the subject at NYU Law School how to do criminal justice justice reform in a DA's office. And my students and I always start by looking at why attempts at change in other institutions, not even government institutions have failed. And it's never because the leader's heart is not in the right place because she didn't have a vision, but because she doesn't understand the institution in which she's working, uh, where the levers of change are. And I think DA Gonzalez, what was at a great advantage and why so many others relied on him is because he knew uh, what he could safely change, uh, where the opportunities were. Uh, and that's why I think it's so important, you know, in, in a race where we are talking so much about how to shape local prosecution to really make it work for everybody, uh, to have somebody who knows what she's doing. Great. And Alvin. So I, I too, like Lucy, will, will have a menu because I've, I've studied a number and draw different things from different DAs. So I would start with actually the late Ken Thompson, who I think was the, 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 the godfather of the conviction degree and a dear friend of mine who was a mentor across the years and honored to have the support of Lushan Thompson, his wife. Uh, and so looking to him on, on designing conviction uh, integrity, uh, thinking about uh, Kim Fox and what she's done on data and transparency. Uh, you know, one of the things about a district attorney's office historically is how opaque it is. We know more about, you know, the, the, the pattern and flow of the sanitation trucks uh, than we do about uh, a lot of the work of the DA's office. So I, I looked at Kim Fox on that. Uh, the person I probably had the most interaction with uh, is Rachel Rollins. I, I, I teach her declination policy in my criminal law class, and I think she's a, a leader across many different spaces, but in particular, uh, declination, declination and, uh, and diversion. Uh, in my conversations with many, including her, uh, as others have noted, it's the management challenge uh, and how to lead an organization. Uh, so for me, I come to this having led a hundred lawyer division and the attorney general's office, and then having overseen the whole office of more than 1500 uh, and know about the importance of uh, setting out a vision clearly, uh, like I've done already on my website, a day one vision of what I will do uh, if elected. Uh, and then how to execute on that vision, uh, which I had to do time and time again as a number two lawyer in the New York State Attorney General's office. Uh, and then uh, and this is something that Tali said, drawing on diverse experiences. You know, Rachel was a federal prosecutor before having her office. So I think drawing on my experiences as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, my experience is also in the city council where I led the uh, uh, litigation, defending progressive lit litigation and knowing how the parts of the city interact. Uh, all of that is key. Uh, really to knowing how to implement a vision that I've set out on the website, my day one plans. Thank you. Uh, next question here. Stay with me. It's got a couple parts. So what steps would you take to ensure the reliability of officer testimony, specifically involving whatever lists already exist in Manhattan that we know of and you may find out about upon coming to office and any new ones you'd intend to make for unreliable officers? And do you have any plans for winning back the trust of rank and file police officers concerned that prosecutors no longer, quote unquote, have their backs? Or if not, and speaking of Marilyn Mosby, among others, uh, any plans to avert the types of soft slowdowns New York and many other cities have seen in recent years? Lucy, uh, we'll start with you all of those questions, to my mind, come back to collaborative leadership. 
And in assessing the reliability of officers, it requires comprehensive investigation to determine whether or not folks are reliable, and then communication uh, within the office across divisions and bureaus to make sure that where there are patterns, they are identified and tracked, that mechanisms are created for disclosing that to the defense and to the public. And of course, the same is true with respect to communicating to the police department about what is and is not appropriate. And that includes a collaborative approach to training. You know, first year rookie assistant district attorneys go to the police academy to train. Rookie cops never go to the district attorney's office. That needs to change. I'm committed to working with the police department to communicate about what the expectations are and that the expectations simply don't include that the district attorney has the police officers back any more than than anyone else. The district attorney represents the community at large. And thinking of uh, progressive prosecutors who I admire, Stephanie Morales from Portsmouth, Virginia is a remarkable district attorney there who's endorsed my candidacy, has uh, herself tried and secured convictions of two police officers who killed young black men in her community. And when she is asked, how can people trust that you can hold the police accountable when you work with them every day? Her response is, I should be as embedded with my whole community as I would ever be perceived to be in the police department. It should be as hard for me to prosecute any member of my community as it would ever be to prosecute a police officer. And that mentality is part of what has enabled her to be so successful, both in holding police officers accountable and in securing the trust of her community, that it is the community whose back she has. And I intend to follow that model. Thank you. Uh, Dali, same question. Sure. Uh, so let me take a step back and, and, and say that, you know, as prosecutors, we have an ethical obligation to make sure that we are only ever relying on credible testimony, uh, whether it's for something like a search warrant or ultimately on the stand. Uh, and this is a part of that responsibility to make sure that any police officer whose word we are relying on uh, is credible. And uh, of course, police officers are repeat players, so this becomes a big project. I actually uh, managed this responsibility in the Brooklyn DA's office, and one of the things that I did was to move this function into the new Law Enforcement Accountability Bureau that we created because it was important also to know if there were police officers whose credibility was so much in question that there might be even more to it and we might be crossing the line uh, into criminal acts. Uh, My team was the first in the state under Dia Gonzalez's leadership to publish a list of officers who we said were so problematic uh, in terms of their credibility that we were just not going to rely on them for anything, uh, even for them to have been the person who told his partner uh, XYZ happened and go get a search warrant on that basis. And I think broadening out from that, Harry, it's just really important that we have more transparency around who is policing us. So, you know, we are on a podcast. I'm going to promote my campaign podcast hearing where I have a conversation with Barry Sheck, the founder of the Innocence Project on this, uh, where we talk about the need to have databases. And these exist in California and Chicago that just allow people to know more about who is policing us. For example, does this officer have a history of domestic violence? We know that police are two to four times more likely to commit domestic violence than a a person who does not wear the uniform. Do we want someone who has that in his life going out to make, uh, you know, to respond to a domestic violence call? So I think transparency here, there's a lot of room for growth and opportunity. Uh, On the second part of your question, let me just say quickly, uh, or you're waving at me, don't say quickly. Uh, Okay. (laughs) For our listeners, I'm out of time. (laughs) They're dense questions, I do know. Uh, I had like three parts, you mm -hmm. know. Okay, but but you, you, you all are lawyers and you're, you're true Zoom professionals at this point. So, Indeed. Uh, Alvin, same question for you about maintaining the the integrity of the officers you're working with, and also maintaining your winning trust of rank and file police officers. This is a critically important issue, generally, but also one that I've lived specifically. I've had police officers lie on me, uh, and I've done this work professionally. I prosecuted an FBI agent. Uh, who we convicted after a jury trial for lying. Uh, 
so this is something I'm working on to this day. I'm representing Eric Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, in a lawsuit against the city seeking transparency. And a centerpiece of that is that we had a police officer who was at the scene uh, when Mr. Garner was killed, assisted in the arrest, went back to his precinct, filled out an arrest report, and said that no force was used. A bold-faced lie. That officer, almost seven years, seven years from Mr. Garner's death this summer, uh, he's still on the force and has not been disciplined. So I'm in court. I'll be back in court uh, in a couple of weeks on that matter. This is a pressing issue. Uh, we we have to hold those accountable for enforcing the law to, you know, truth telling. I mean, it's really basic, uh, but very, very, very important. Uh, so I would do that through holding them accountable through prosecutions where appropriate, uh, like the one I did with the FBI agent. Uh, and also by not calling as witnesses of uh, those who uh, have engaged in misconduct. Um in terms of restoring trust, I've been doing this for the past 20 plus years where I've been both a civil rights lawyer and a prosecutor. When I was prosecuting that FBI agent, I had other FBI agents say, what are you doing? He's our guy. I said, look, do you lie? Do you obstruct justice? He's the one you need to be concerned with. He is the one making your job harder and tying this issue to public safety. If the community does not trust you, like you know, me growing up, I know this issue personally being stopped. If you don't have that trust in the community, those are your witnesses. Uh, those are your victims. And so I've had that conversation. We need to have that uncomfortable conversation over and over again and tie it to public safety and the efficacy of doing their job. But what we also need to do is talk about uh, what we want officers to do. And so I talk about the public safety cases I've done where they've I've worked side by side with them to make the streets safer as well. And um, that also helps to restore confidence in the force and by extension in the community. Thank you. And Eliza. Yeah. So as a public defender, I have seen police officers walk into court, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and lie under oath. I've seen how that impacts people, how people end up in jail or prison because of these lies. And that is something that should not ever be tolerated by a district attorney. And the Manhattan DA's office has really been complicit in this continuing misconduct by the NYPD. That is why I'm completely dedicated to creating a police accountability unit that actually holds the police accountable, that makes sure that police officers who have a history of misconduct, that th that lists are made public so that New Yorkers can hold people accountable. You know, I know how difficult it is to get as a, as a public defender to get the information regarding prior instances of misconduct or lying that happens on the part of the NYPD. And so it's incredibly critical that those things be disclosed. Um, obviously, there is going to have to be a collaboration with the NYPD. And there are plenty of officers out there who I know and respect and who I've worked with throughout my career. Um, and those you know, that's why the unit will be completely walled off and separate and even housed separately from the rest of the district attorney's office because, you know, prosecutions against police officers do um, have to exist so that we can maintain the trust and integrity um, of law enforcement in our communities, which I think right now has been completely undermined by the district attorney's office's complicity with the continuing misconduct on the part of the police. Great. Thank you all. So, Tali, we're going to start with you with this question. Uh, and the order will be Tali, Alvin, Eliza, Lucy. Uh, and the question is this. Is the model for ADAs, which is primarily 25 and 26-year-olds straight out of law school, the right model? And should people so young have so much power? Mm -hmm. Tali, we'll start with you. Christina, what, uh, what an interesting question. And, uh, you know, it's something that I think about in terms of the different responsibilities that we can give to our younger or greener ADAs. And, you know, one of the things that um, I've really focused on is changing who are the gatekeepers of the criminal justice system. Because right now, uh, the model is that generally the youngest, newest ADAs are the ones who are staffing the early case assessment bureau, uh, which is uh, the gate, right? It's where we decide as prosecutors which of the arrests that the police have made we are going to write up and turn into criminal cases. And it seems to me like that 
that function, which might seem very menial, and certainly you have to do it in the middle of the night, and there are things about it that are unattractive, is actually really important and a place where you are going to want to have more experience and the maturity and the judgment that comes with experience. Because the hard work is not just lining up the facts with the statute and seeing if there is a charge available, but using your discretion to say, is it just to bring the charge uh, in these cases. Uh, and I think that's a lot to put on people with the least experience. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, I've made this, it may seem like a small thing, but I think to me, it's actually really important uh, as a change with how we think about the criminal justice system, because so much of what we are ultimately talking about, Christina, is who is entering the system. You know, once you enter the criminal justice system, it's not so easy to exit uh, and you have to live with the consequences of the disruption of the conviction of, uh, you know, carrying that with you. Thank you. Uh, Alvin. I think about that question in, in, in about four buckets. So first I'm a, I'm a law professor, so I'm working every day with law students and uh, see them mature from first year to third year uh, and, and can say certainly in, in, when well-trained can, can step into a job, but need supervision. Uh, and the gatekeeper role, which Tali mentioned, is critically important. When, when I was federal prosecutor, I thought the two most important roles were the co-chiefs of our, our rookie unit, folks who are starting out. Uh, that's why I've said on, on my website, on my day one memo, uh, that I'm going to make the, the head of the intake unit part of my senior leadership team and have be permanent uh, a role and not one that sort of rotates uh, because that role is so critical. So it's important to, to give them support. Uh, also, it's important to ask what they do. Right now, so much of what they do are what I call the churn cases. More than 80% of the city's docket is misdemeanor. And what I want to do is shift away from cases that don't have to do with public safety and always have a uh, question, does this case advance public safety? And if not, uh, we will not do it. Uh, what that means is we will have times when we can pair junior ADAs with more senior people in the office working on more complicated long-term cases. I did that myself in various management positions, uh, mentoring uh, lawyers and bringing them on in complicated cases. Right now, some of these minor cases are used as training devices, and we should not be doing that. Uh, the third is values and culture. We need to grow them up in a, in a culture that's not focused on uh, arrest and convictions as the uh, you know sole uh, or even primary way to evaluate, but really based on their judgment. And are they doing things that advance public safety? And lastly, is hiring who we hire. I mean, I didn't go to the DA's office straight out because I didn't think it was a culture that welcomed me. It was not something growing up in Harlem that you look to do. We need to be hiring from Manhattan. We have reverse brain drain here. We have uh, so much talent. And we need to focus on the full beauty in all four corners of Manhattan and prioritize those like me who engage with and been affected by the system because uh, they bring wisdom beyond their years and not just the law school training. All right. Thank you. Uh, so, Eliza and Lucy, I would just repeat the question for you. Is the model for ADAs, 25, 26-year-olds, straight out of law school, the right model? And should people so young have so much power? So, Eliza. So, listen, experience is incredibly important, but so are values. And prosecutors who are elected to reimagine prosecuting, which is what I'm dedicated to doing, will have to make sure that that. I am surrounded with people who are committed to that ideal. And that includes not just in upper levels of management, but hiring people with similar beliefs and replacing prosecutors who have been there and, and upheld this you know, regime that I've been elected to basically dismantle. And I think that the importance of newly hired, young, hungry um, assistant district attorneys who share my values, who who want to fight to have a district attorney's office that effectuates justice in a way that actually keeps us safe, that doesn't over-prosecute people for low-level offenses and doesn't just destroy families with impunity, you know, is really important. I mean, I went to the public defender's office straight out of law school and I was young, but I was really hardworking and I cared very deeply about these issues. And I think that having people who are young and hungry for change isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, those who are established and wealthy and well-connected and, and who want to come in and be career prosecutors um, are sometimes the people who are upholding these systems that are creating such devastating harms. And, and so I think that, you know, many of the people who I will bring in will share that 
that mandate of being truly progressive, you know, making sure that the new leadership um, and that the, the young people in the office do, in fact, uh, stay true to those values. Thank you. And Lucy. I started at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as a 25-year-old recent law school graduate, in large part because while I was in law school, a friend of mine was found murdered in the trunk of a car, and it was discovered that it was her brother who was suffering from serious mental illness who had committed the crime. And I watched her family be underserved, both as the family of a victim and as a family of a person charged with a crime. And it was partially a desire to improve upon and impact that that led me to the district attorney's office. That is to say that 25-year-olds can bring the wealth of their life experience to the project of implementing progressive prosecution. And that's why it is important that we recruit a diverse and mission-aligned workforce in the district attorney's office. And that can and should include laterals who have more life experience than people directly out of law school. But all of the staff need to be given clear guidelines about how to use their discretion. There need to be transparent charging guidelines and plea guidelines so that there is consistency. And there needs to be an incentive structure that's mission aligned so that rather than rewarding people based on the number of cases they write up during a seven-hour shift writing up cases, that they are rewarded based on how they exercise their discretion and good judgment based on the depth and connection of their communication with victims and witnesses, based on their ability to scrutinize and interrogate the evidence that's brought before them and reach the just conclusion whether or not it results in writing up a case. There should be as much reward for dismissing or declining to write up a case uh, where it is appropriate as there ever would be for writing it up or for securing an, uh, a conviction. And I, I think importantly, the people who are graduating from law school right now are steeped in the issues that are top of mind to so many of us right now in a way that even 10 years ago, law students weren't necessarily. They are coming out of colleges and law schools having studied critical race theory and queer theory and uh, the kinds of important scholarship and, and problems that really were not as much a part of the mainstream a generation ago. So there's a lot to be said for recruiting young people who are mission aligned as long as they are given adequate leadership. So I have a very quick follow-up for you and then Christina has a question for the uh, for the group. Um, and, and if anyone else wants to jump in here, just, just let us know. Like, wh- what are specific metrics in brief, like in 30 seconds, that you would use to, to measure discretion? It's very easy to measure cases. Measuring uh, discretion and decency, I think, is a little trickier. Well, measuring discretion, I agree, is complicated, and it needs to include things like tracking declinations and dismissals. You know, when I was a... At a, at a senior level at the district attorney's office, it was considered a real stain on someone to dismiss a case that had been indicted. So actually, I would sometimes um, sign off on a dismissal for a junior lawyer so that they would not have that count against them in their performance evaluation. So we need to expand the breadth of how we judge what's happening in cases in order to understand discretion. And then performance metrics also need to be expanded to include things like contact with victims, integration with community, and overall exercise of the variety of functions of the district attorney's office, not just the prosecutorial function. Thank you. Uh, Alvin, do you want to jump in there? And then, uh, Ty? Uh, yeah, so I, I think there are a couple of you know specific things we can do. One, I've got a declination and diversion policy, and one reason I've articulated it, because when you set it out in writing, you can then judge people's uh, adherence to it. The other thing is, I'm going to assess people based on racial disparities. I've, uh, you know, we've looked at the historical data. We know that uh, like cases are not treated uh, similarly based upon data. I'm going to hold uh, my managers and ADAs responsible for treating right like cases alike, and I'm going to use that as a performance measure. Thank you. Tali? Uh, thank you, Harry. So quickly, just a, a 
this is really important that we've moved past the idea of measuring success just on wins and losses and conviction rates. And some of the things that we introduced into evaluations in the Brooklyn DA's office were things like as Lucy said, how did you treat other people? You know, what would witnesses and victims say about the experience with you? Uh, What was the quality of your work, the quality of your legal writing? Did you understand the law properly? Were your convictions upheld? Uh, Did you know all of the diversion options and did you offer them appropriately? So I think there actually really is a roadmap there. Thank you. Eliza, did you you want to jump in there? We can't see you. Yeah, I I do. Um, You know, I think that for far too long, the the district attorney's office has measured success based on number of convictions, you know, based on length of prison sentences. And the fact of the matter is that stuff is not transparent with regards to how public defenders can find out what dispositions were offered. You know, you're just relying on an assistant district attorney's word when they say, oh, we don't offer disorderly conduct on an assault too. And so instead of actually being able to look and see if that exists, I would have to send an email to my office and say, hey, has anyone ever gotten a discount on an assault too? And then find out the docket number, et cetera. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm incredibly committed to is transparency and accountability and, and making sure that everything is tracked, you know, not just the racial breakdown, not just gender breakdown, et cetera, but, but a long list of metrics, including percentage of cases dismissed, time for disposition for misdemeanors for felonies, time to initial appearance, percentage of cases referred to alternatives to incarceration, you know, length of sentence, you know, whether someone received an ATI, and if so, whether they were able to um, successfully complete it and what sentence was given if the alternative wasn't there. So I think like all of these things need to be measured and that's incredibly important to make sure that the values that I'm espousing are being upheld. Thank you. Um, Okay, I believe we're starting with Alvin. Yes. Okay, and this is just a quick 30 second follow-up for each of you. Um, What city agency will you rely on to support the work that you plan to do in the DA's office? Alvin, we'll start with you. I don't know if I can identify one specific city agency. I mean, one of the great things about the district attorney's office is that it's in many ways self-contained. Uh, I'm, you know, worked at the city council. I view uh, them as a as a kind of partner in this. We obviously have the mayor's office of criminal justice and city hall. And then for many of the things that I think should be shifted out of the the, the system, like homeless sweeps, that would be um, you know DSS uh, uh, for things that are like school to prison pipeline. We're looking at DOE. So I don't know if I can just identify one, but that's part of a menu there. Okay. Eliza, 30 seconds. Well, I mean, I do think that some of the transparency of Mock J is probably something that that we would be working with them in that with regards to that. But I do think that there are some really important things that we need to make sure that there's investment into, you know, in terms of um, mental health treatment and treatment for substance use disorder. There is funding there. There is funding that has been allocated for people to receive those things, um, and yet it's not happening. So I think that um, you know it is incumbent on the district attorney to make sure to work with other city agencies. I don't know that I have one in mind specifically, but but certainly to make sure that those things are being effectuated. Lucy, I share a commitment to working with the agencies that have been described and would add the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, which is going to be a critical partner in ensuring that we can divert uh, public health issues like substance misuse and mental health challenges out of the criminal justice system, and would also add that there uh, really does need to be a better integration with academic and research partners to implement some of uh, studying some of the kinds of metrics we've been talking about and seeing which innovative programs are working and should be scaled. Okay, and Tali. It's the NYPD. These are our partners in public safety. And to go back to uh, Harry's question, which I didn't finish answering, you know, I am worried about the demoralization of the police, just as I'm worried about the demoralization of prosecutors. And what we want as prosecutors is for the police to succeed in their core mission, which is our core mission, uh, which is delivering on public safety. And we can demand reform there, just as we expect reform of ourselves, uh, to hold the police to account as we hold anybody else to account, uh, and also to assert that this only works if we work together uh, in building the cases uh, that people depend on us to build. Thank you. So this is a weird race, a few ways. You guys don't have to be your own political pundits. There's basically no <laughs> no public polling. 
Uh, you can raise really ridiculous sums of money because of the very generous state limits there, which are much higher than the cities. There's no ranked choice because it's a, it's a county and thus a state contest. And so there are a number of issues that I think are very important to potential one of your potential partners in law uh, and, and, and government authority that the voters don't care about. But I want to dig in for a second, right? So the New York County DA, it's like the premier non-federal prosecutor of white-collar crimes, but you're sharing space physically and jurisdictionally with the Southern District. And the SDNY is the premier federal prosecutor of white-collar crimes. And so what do you think? <clears throat> Donald Trump, the uh, proper relationship between the two offices should be in these cases. And related, should the DANY be prosecuting international fraud or narcotic cases? Why or why not? And we are starting here with Lucy. I can't speak to any of the cases that are currently pending before the office. And as a result of that, wouldn't um, deign to weigh in on whether particular prosecutions are more appropriate in the Southern District or in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They have long been partners. I have worked on cases uh, in partnership with the Southern District when I was at the District Attorney's Office, and that is not uncommon practice in cases of white collar and other conspiracies, and I would certainly continue that practice and it, as appropriate in existing cases and in any future ones. The unique thing about the Manhattan District Attorney, of course, is jurisdiction, or one of them, is jurisdiction over Wall Street and the long tradition of um, pursuing people who are responsible for white-collar crimes. And it's an area that I intend to expand as District Attorney, and I've set forth a plan for how I intend to restructure the Economic Crimes Bureau in a way that will improve upon the existing infrastructure for pursuing those kind of investigations. And where there is a vacuum in international crimes, that the Manhattan District Attorney has the jurisdiction and resources to fill, that's entirely appropriate. I think that in the instance, for example, of increasing dissemination of child sexual abuse materials on the internet, that's an area where the Manhattan District Attorney really can and should be a leader, but is going to require collaboration with a number of agencies in order to stem the tide of that kind of increasing international uh, crime. Thank you. Uh, Tali, same, same question in brief. How should uh, DANY and SDNY relate? Should the DNY be prosecuting international fraud and narcotics cases? Why or why not? Uh, and Harry, as you know, I was a federal prosecutor for six years. I worked um, in uh, the leadership of the entire Department of Justice with Eric Holder. And let me say very clearly the Manhattan DA's office should be prosecuting anybody that is hurting New Yorkers uh, and uh, full stop. So if you're positing, you know, an international crime that happens somewhere else that has no effect on any of us living here um, on the borough of Manhattan. Okay. We could put that to the side, but of course we're so, uh, we're so interconnected and we know that you can do so much more harm sometimes with a computer and an internet connection or pen and paper uh, than you can with your fist or a knife or some other instrument. Uh, so this is a really important part of the legacy of the Manhattan DA's office. And the office has an expertise, for example, in cybercrime. Um, many of the frauds that are perpetuated against folks here have a connection uh, to another part of the world. And it's our responsibility to work on those. You know, in terms of the interplay between the state uh, and the federal, uh, it, it the, historically, different things have happened. Sometimes the offices collaborate. Uh, and when I was a federal prosecutor, we sometimes collaborated with our uh, state and local partners on all sorts of things, from public corruption, I did cases with them, to, uh, to gang violence, where I prosecuted working with the NYPD. Uh, sometimes there's been competition between the two offices, which is also a good thing for the people that live here. Uh, and sometimes I think that this, the DA has had to step into something that the feds won't do uh, or don't have the bandwidth to do. Uh, and 
There are lots of cases that have traditionally been um, more amenable in this space to uh, local prosecution. And one great example is wage theft, a crime that uh, has gotten so much worse uh, during the course of this pandemic, which uh, at scale, when you add up all the people who are suffering from it, uh, it it is really quite staggering. uh, And I think an important thing for us to take on. Thank you, Uh, Alvin. So, of course, I was in the Southern District of New York uh, under Preet Bharara, who's endorsed me, uh, focused on public corruption, an area I think that uh, local local authorities were correctly criticized for for being um, absent while we were taking the lead in the Southern District of New York. Uh, And when I was the number two lawyer in the New York Attorney General's office, part of my portfolio was coordinating with the Eastern District, the Southern District and local prosecutors. So I've I've, I've done that is very important, uh, you know, I think, to prioritize and, 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 and coordinate prosecutorial resources. Uh, I think the Manhattan DA's office and local prosecutors in general have a really big role to play and it's significant tools. So public corruption, which is my area, having prosecuted two mayors and the former majority leader of the state Senate. The last Supreme Court case, Bridgegate, which we're familiar with, expressly said, hey, some of this stuff should be done by local prosecutors. So that's an area that we're going to step into and prioritize based upon my, my work and career. Securities fraud. Uh, the last case I oversaw supervising in the AG's office was a securities fraud case. We've got a powerful tool in the Martin Act, which federal prosecutors don't have. Uh, I worked on the March case, one of the most significant antitrust cases uh, in the history of the state. The Donnelly Act, a powerful tool that we can use. Uh, and Tali mentioned labor law. We prioritized that at the attorney general's office. We pioneered. We stepped into what we thought was a void uh, in, in local prosecution. And in fact, went to uh, and trained the uh, local prosecutors on the use of labor law uh, because of the effects it has on our economy uh, uh, and, and not, not to mention, obviously, the people who are uh, their wages wrongfully taken from them. On the issue of international, I mean, one of the cases I tried when I was uh, at the Southern District of New York, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, was uh, a business person who laundered millions of dollars for the violence in the little cartel. That his business was located in Laredo, Texas, but the effects of his misconduct you know, were felt really around the globe, but particularly also here. So we need to be doing cases where uh, the effect is felt here, even if uh, the, the, some of the conduct is far away. Our job is to, to, to have Manhattan be as fair and safe as possible, and doing those cases often will advance that goal. Thank you. And Eliza? So as a public defender, I often had cases that were either passed up by the um, Southern District, you know, that I've, I've brought clients in who've gone and spoken to, you know, not just the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, but U.S. attorneys from um, the Southern District. And so I, I do recognize that there is, you know, an inherent interconnectedness between, you know, the prosecutor's offices here in New York. But there should still be um, uh, certain things that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office should be bringing. And that is inherently because there are crimes that are being committed here in Manhattan um, that the federal prosecutors are not bringing. And so the Manhattan District Attorney's Office should certainly be bringing those cases um, when necessary. And the way in which the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has typically operated has been having the overwhelming majority of cases that come through are these low-level offenses, the things that are, you know, things that shouldn't be being prosecuted. And instead of you know, going after people who are actually hurting New Yorkers, including bad landlords, bad police officers, you know, cybercrime, et cetera. And so, you know, we need to make sure that the DA's office is um, taking those things seriously, whether they are local, domestic, or international. Great. Um, So let's start with the closer and our last question. Uh, Harry, can you please (laughs) check the the chat for me, please? But we're going to start with Tali for the last question. And this will be one minute for each of you. Uh, And this is our closing question. Only about 5% of criminal cases make it to trial. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And if not, is the onus on the Manhattan DA to change that? Uh, Christina, you know, I think it's not okay. And this is why I've talked about um, the importance of bringing uh, truthful charging, you know, at the beginning, you know, of a case. We've talked a lot uh, in in today's conversation about uh, federal prosecution and experiences there. And, you know, uh, I was trained as a federal prosecutor to bring the charges that I wanted to see through all the way to the end of the case, right? Uh, So not charges that are there to uh, create leverage 
to uh, intimidate somebody into pleading guilty, uh, but really what you thought happened, what you thought the criminal conduct was. And uh, that's why I think truth in charging is such an important uh, first step for any good prosecutor, for any ethical prosecutor. And my sense is that that would have an important effect on the very low rate of convictions that you're talking about, which of course, as you know, is true across the board. This is not specific to Manhattan or to local prosecution. Um, uh, This is widespread. And I think it has something to do with the power dynamics in plea negotiations, which we can change. Alvin? Look, I think it's a problem on many levels. It's a systemic problem when we're not adjudicating matters. Obviously, trials are a fundamental part of our our, our constitutional system. It's also specifically a problem for the people who are (coughs) charged. and. Uh, feel uh, a, a pressure to resolve through a plea because they know if they go to trial, uh, they'll they'll face what we call the trial tax uh, and we'll have uh, a heftier sentence. So I would in that practice, uh, one of the things that, you know, my practice we've done is we're not not penalizing folks for that. It's something I would, would definitely change because I think that has a, a problem. And other thing I've mentioned is when folks have a constitutional right to a, to a hearing, like a, a suppression hearing, not holding that against them as well. Um, I know some judges have done this and have adopted this practice in the courtroom and uh, things still run efficiently. And it's something I would definitely do. And I would just note, I've lived through a lot of this with loved ones of the overcharging and seen it firsthand. And so I completely agree that that's, that's, that is a part of it, but I think also ending the trial tax is crucial too. And Eliza? Yes, so I've seen the way in which the coercive nature of plea bargaining results in people not exercising their constitutional right to go to trial. Um, and not only is it ending a hearing tax and a trial tax, but but making sure that charging decisions are such that people are not facing mandatory life sentences. You know, recently, Mr. Bragg put out something that said, oh, well, if I wanted to eliminate the ability to ask for, um, you know, to not seek a life sentence, I just wouldn't file a predicate felony statement. But that's not how it works in state court. And I know that he has experience in other court, but maybe not so much in, in New York state court. But, but the way in which it works is that the case will get kicked back to us if someone one doesn't, if someone is a predicate felon and is not sentenced as such. So it's not so simple as just not filing a statement. You know, we need to have ethical prosecutors who actually want to reduce the number of people who are being incarcerated, who are making sure that plea offers are fair, who are not putting these take it or leave it things in place, and who are ending pretrial detention because that is the most coercive practice when it comes to coercing pleas and making people plead out rather than exercise their right to go to trial. And Lucy. In addition to being a constitutional right, trials help keep the system honest. So the onus is on the district attorney to change how few criminal cases actually go to trial. It starts by decreasing the number of cases that come into the system. That means declining to prosecute cases that don't belong in it, diverting cases into other systems that belong elsewhere, and ending cash bail for the reasons that were just described. I'm also committed to truth in charging, and there needs to be transparency around that so that all the players in the system understand what the expectations and exposure is for a particular charging decision. And along with that transparency, of course, comes real open file discovery and making sure that people who are charged with crimes and their attorneys really understand what the evidence against them is so that they can make a fully informed decision about the appropriate outcome of the case in a way that is not coercive, but that is um, based on the entirety of the evidence. Thank you, uh, Alvin. We want to give you time to follow up there. And I also just wanted to ask you in relation both to what Eliza brought up and, and generally we've got like I think a 40,000 case backlog of criminal cases at the moment. If you're dropping the trial tax, are, are you hiring lots more prosecutors? Do you have some idea how that would work with, with judges and so on? I was also hoping you could address that just given, given your answer and you can take a minute. Thank you. No, no so sure. So as to the first part, I mean – I have practiced in criminal court as a, as a defense lawyer. I've also oversaw, uh, you know, more than 150 uh, lawyers practicing state court. I'm very well familiar with how uh, uh, the charging works and, and how uh, the predicates work. And what I've laid out, which is you know not just one sentence here, is really a path towards having sentences not be overly punitive. Uh, in terms of the backlog, you're right. Uh, this is a critical issue. Uh, but I also have, and I've laid all this out on my website as a blueprint, 
you know, a declination diversion policy that I think if we look at not just prospectively, but retrospectively on the backlog will go a long way to uh, addressing the issue you just raised. Well, thank you all very much for a, a really interesting and lively hour. Uh, we'll be watching and uh, uh, wish you all well. We got the first Zoom panel to all agree that they would rejoin us in a year, <laughs> lose or draw, to uh, discuss the state of the office of criminal justice. Is there any chance we can get this group to also uh, agree to the same thing? Love that idea. Sounds good. I'm in. All right. I think listeners should also know that Harry has the most friendly expression on his face when asking all of these hard-hitting questions and sort of smiles and nods along. It's really um, much appreciated being on the other end of it. Oh, thank you, sort of, but, but, but ah, I, I'd like to think I sound gruff and intimidating. No, no, Christina <laughs> sounds gruff and intimidating. I think she fills oh, that for role. Sure. <laughs> no, you guys are great. Thank you. That's interesting. I'm still All right. <laughs> thank you all. F. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you goes to our guests running for DA, Alvin Bragg, Eliza Orleans, Lucy Lang, and Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>